Albert Speer was a Nazi. Uh, Adolf Hitler's chief architect and minister of armaments and war production, a very powerful man. It's been reported that Speer had 14 million workers under him and was virtually the economic dictator of the country. After the Nuremberg trial, Speer served a 20-year prison sentence, was eventually released in 1966, and became a writer. One of Speer's books uh, was titled Inside the Third Reich. In this book, he shared a perspective of Hitler that I think you'll find interesting. And here's what Albert Speer wrote. Hitler had been much impressed by a scrap of history he had learned from a delegation of distinguished Arabs. When the Mohammedans attempted to penetrate beyond France into Central Europe during the 8th century, his visitors had told him they had been driven back at the Battle of Tours. Had the Arabs won this battle, the world would be Mohammedan today. For theirs was a religion that believed in spreading the faith by the sword and subjugating all nations to that faith. The German peoples would have become heirs to that religion. Such a creed was perfectly suited to the Germanic temperament. Hitler said that the conquering Arabs, because of their racial inferiority, would in the long run have been unable to contend with the harsher climate and conditions of the country. They could not have kept down the more vigorous natives so that ultimately not Arabs but Islamized Germans could have stood at the head of this Mohammedan empire. Hitler usually concluded this historical speculation by remarking, you see, it's been our unfortunate, it's been our misfortune to have the wrong religion. Why didn't we have the religion of the Japanese who regard sacrifice for the fatherland as the highest good? The Mohammedan religion, too, would have been much more compatible to us than Christianity. Why did it have to be Christianity with its meekness and flabbiness? Why did it have to be Christianity with its meekness and flabbiness? Now, the Christianity of Germany in Hitler's day was essentially counterfeit Christianity. Nonetheless, Hitler found meekness unfitting and undesirable for a noble and a strong people wanting to inherit the earth. And I think Hitler gave voice to the modern opinion of meekness. In diverse ways, people today prefer power and domination to meekness. There's a reason why Nike's slogan is not just be meek. Could meekness be among the most undesirable attributes today? Many loathe meekness. Many misunderstand meekness. I'd like to address three primary things. One, how the world thinks about meekness. Number two, how Jesus Christ thinks about meekness. And number three, how and why we should pursue meekness. Number one, how the world thinks about meekness. First, the world doesn't really use the term meek. The, the usage of the word has significantly declined uh, since the 1800s, and I'd guess that religious people use it most. Second, meekness is often misunderstood. Many think meekness is to be spiritless, cowardly, even pitiful. Well, is that what Jesus had in mind? I read this misperception of meekness online. The adjective meek describes a person who is willing to go along with whatever other people want to do. Like a meek classmate who won't speak up even when he or she is treated unfairly. 
A meek person can also be humble, but these words aren't quite synonymous. If you are humble, you don't want a lot of attention like the humble athlete who has a truly excellent performance yet after the game tells reporters that it was group effort by the whole team. A meek person, on the other hand, would never think a reporter would ever want to talk to him or her and if asked, would probably try to get someone else, someone more worthy to do it. Is meekness uncertainty, insecurity, passivity? Does Jesus mean blessed are the pushovers? Blessed are those without a backbone? Once again, Jesus thinks differently than the world. Third, we can better understand what the world thinks about meekness when we see what the world prioritizes above meekness. Now, I think the world's opinion of meekness can be summed up with the famous 1965 black and white photo of Muhammad Ali standing over Sonny Liston after knocking him out in the first round. You probably have seen it. Uh, Ali's arm is across his chest and he's looking down at Liston uh, and it's as if he's shouting at Liston. The world seems to think that the earth is gained by standing over fallen opponents. But Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The world has a, its own set of beatitudes. Here are a few of the prevailing deceitful beatitudes of the world. Blessed are the beautiful. The gospel of the world says, the earth is yours if you're beautiful. Studies have been done on this. Beautiful people are often hired sooner, promoted more quickly, and paid more. But does the earth really belong to the beautiful? There are many empty, depressed, and hurting beautiful people, and beauty is sometimes a cause of their pain. One beautiful woman actually said, quote, people hate me because I'm beautiful, end of quote. Blessed are the powerful. The gospel of the world says the earth is yours if you're powerful. The, the power of position, the power of physique. Many times, it's the powerful people that get what they want in the world. But does the earth really belong to the powerful? Julius Caesar, a picture of power, betrayed and killed by those close to him. Muhammad Ali was named the greatest. He developed Parkinson's disease and he died of septic shock. Blessed are the wealthy. The gospel of the world says the earth is yours if you're wealthy. Few would say that money buys happiness, yet many pursue it as if it does. But does the earth really belong to the wealthy? Adolf Merkel was Germany's richest man, and at one time he was worth $12.8 billion. The financial crisis of 2008 hit. By 2009, Merkel was bankrupt, and he took his own life. Blessed are the famous. Blessed are the educated. Blessed are the likable. Blessed are the adventurous. Blessed are the pompous. Blessed are the vengeful. Blessed are the fun. These are deceitful beatitudes. Who wants to hear the message, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth? On the surface, it appears to be false. It doesn't work. Jesus thinks and talks differently than everyone else because he is the embodiment of truth. The deceitful beatitudes of the world's brothers and sisters, very persuasive. Very persuasive. And we need to be extremely attentive to the word of Christ so that we know the truth of how and why to inherit the earth. 
stay close to Jesus. Two, how Jesus thinks about meekness. The third beatitude builds upon the first two. Those who are spiritually impoverished and who mourn sin and guilt are also meek. Spiritual bankruptcy and grief over sin have a way of humbling people. And to make his point, Jesus draws from Psalm 37. So so let's get some background from Psalm 37. Psalm 37 is David's song. Uh, David addressed the tension that we feel when godless people prosper and godly people suffer. And it doesn't seem right. And David encourages God's people not to envy evildoers, but to instead trust the Lord and to do good. And multiple times David mentions the land or inheriting the land to remind God's people of the blessing of trusting God. I'll mention several lines from from Psalm 37. Verse 9, those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Verse 11, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Verse 22, those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. Verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. Now, there's a lot to consider in Psalm 37, but one thing is sure. Happiness in the land is for the righteous who humbly and meekly wait for the Lord, delight themselves in his peace, are blessed by the Lord, and who keep his way. Jesus borrows from Psalm 37 to establish his third beatitude. Okay, so what is meekness really? It appears three other times in the New Testament. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle or meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. In Matthew 21, verse 5, as Jesus and the disciples uh, made provision for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, Matthew says it took place to fulfill what Zechariah prophesied, and he quotes... Zechariah 9.9, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble or meek and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The king is meek, not weak, meek. We understand meekness when we see it in the person and work of Jesus Christ the King. Jesus is far from a pushover, far from pathetic, spiritless, or cowardly. He is the epitome of power and gentleness. His life and cross display the beautiful harmony of power and meekness. The other place meek appears is 1 Peter 3, 4, which exhorts Christian women But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle or meek and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So meekness is an internal and imperishable character trait which is precious in God's sight. Meekness avoids harshness and a haughty spirit. So maybe this image will help you. I want you to imagine a big man, 
a towering six foot five, 250 pound muscle bound man, a down home farm boy type of man who knows how to work and you know he could easily beat you up. That's, the, that's what. And this brawny man, this farm boy, he has a kind and gentle demeanor. You, you sense his strength, yet for some reason you're not threatened. You're not put off by him because of his tenderness. And you watch him treat his lovely wife with utmost tenderness and love and service, and you watch him command respect from his children, and yet he's the guy that laughs and rolls around with his kids in the grass playing silly children's games. Now, who watches that guy and thinks, that guy's a big sissy, what a loser. Nobody. You, you are drawn to that man because of the harmony of strength and meekness. Meekness is not the absence of power. It's gentleness, humility, self-effacement, and, and control even with great power. Self-control. The God-man Jesus Christ is the supreme harmony of power and weakness. I'm sorry, power and meekness, not weakness. Well, I think the, the great Puritan commentator Matthew Henry provides a profound perspective on meekness, and I think you'll, you'll find this helpful. Henry wrote this. The meek are those who quietly submit themselves to God, to His word and to His rod, who follow His directions and comply with His designs and are gentle towards all men, who can bear provocation without being inflamed by it, are either silent or return a soft answer, and who can show their displeasure when there is occasion for it without being transported into any indecencies, who can be cool when others are hot and in their patience keep possession of their own souls when they can scarcely keep possession of anything else. They are the meek who are rarely and hardly provoked but quickly and easily pacified and who would rather forgive 20 injuries than revenge one, having the rule of their own spirits. Truly happy people quietly and joyfully submit themselves to God. Truly happy people have a gentle manner with others. Truly happy people have slow triggers. They answer adversaries with patience and respect. They are slow to anger, quick to overlook offenses, and quick to forgive. Truly happy people leave vengeance in the hands of God and are self-controlled. Jesus was right. Blessed are the meek. On Thursday, my, my family uh, took a trip to Cape Henlopen in Delaware. Really cool place. Recommend going there. And on the trip, I just encountered several crazy drivers. Crazy drivers. One guy was particularly crazy. And I'll leave out the details, but I will admit my horn wasn't meek. Because I wasn't meek in my meeklessness. Honest, I, I wasn't very happy either. Heated? Yes. Happy? Not so much. Not so much. Why? Blessed are the meek. That's why 
My lack of meekness weakened my happiness, my peace, my contentedness. I was tense, not tranquil. Was my anger justified in one sense? Absolutely. Uh, But not my meeklessness. My spirit would have been happier and freer to enjoy my family if it was meek instead of easily provoked. And folks, angry and easily provoked people are not happy. They are miserable, and you can sense it. Why are so many people angry, unhappy, and miserable? Because they foster a spirit of dominance, power, position, supremacy, entitlement. True happiness is when God's grace and God's spirit overcome a spirit of dominance and power and position and supremacy and entitlement and grant meekness. When you look to Christ and you depend on his grace and submit yourself to God, he makes you meek. I want to give you the how and why of meekness. Meekness is not only possible for us, brothers and sisters, it brings great benefit. To us. Number three, how and why we should pursue meekness. First, how. In our spiritual poverty and grief over sin, we pursue meekness by humbly running to Christ and receiving his grace to be meek through faith. Uh, we persistently ask God for his grace and spirit. We believe that we receive and we trust Christ to make us meek like him. Self-confidence is the enemy of meekness. Because God opposes the proud, but what does he do to the humble? He gives them grace. Meek people need God's grace. Meek people want God's grace. Spiritually impoverished people who are grieved about sin approach God with humility and need. How else are they going to approach him? The fruit of the Spirit sounds like meekness to me. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It sounds like meekness. Walk by the Spirit. Depend on the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And you will be meek. The how of meekness is knowing Christ and humbly walking by His Spirit. Now, why would you want to be meek when hardly anybody around you is? Few people are, and many times it appears to us that the dominant, uh, uh, overpowering, controlling, manipulative, and maniacal people, they're the ones getting ahead, and it grinds on us, and we're uncomfortable, so why on earth would we want to be meek? Well, the answer is simple. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. God blesses the meek, and he makes them a covenant promise. They will inherit the earth. Do you want to inherit the earth? If so, meekness is your passion. Who has a spot in the kingdom of God? Who will inherit all the earth? Is it the strong? Is it the dominant? Is it the uh, assertive and aggressive and antagonistic? Is it those who always demand to have their way? No, no. No, the meek shall inherit the earth. They don't merit the earth, they inherit the earth. The meek belong to Christ, the heir of all the earth, and so the meek alone are co-heirs of all the earth. 
Paul said in Galatians 3.29, And if you are Christ's, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Heirs according to promise. The promise to those who belong to Christ, to Abraham's true offspring, is this. They will inherit the earth as heirs with Christ. So, so meekness is for them. Now, at this point, it helps us to remember the Abrahamic covenant. And I want to help you understand the phrase, inherit the earth. That's what I'm, that's what I'm after right now. So stick with me here. What did God promise Abraham in Genesis 13, verses 14 through 17? Let me read those. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. God added in Genesis 17, verse 8, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, what was that covenant promise all about? Take note of what Stephen the martyr preached about Abraham in his sermon in Acts 7 before he was stoned to death by angry Jews. Stephen preached this. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. Now, isn't it odd that God promised the land to Abraham, but Abraham had no inheritance in it? How's that? Did God lie? Did, did God fail? Well, Hebrews 11 resolves the tension. Listen to verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that had foundations whose designer and builder is God. Okay, Abraham was seeing the land, but he was looking beyond the land to a celestial city. The physical land of Canaan was typological of a heavenly land to be inherited by Abraham. And then the writer of Hebrews mentions Sarah and many descendants born of Abraham. God's covenant promises, they were for those people too. And the writer of Hebrews says, listen very carefully, these all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Okay. Abraham died without having received what God promised him. His descendants died without having received what God promised them. Did God lie? Did God fail? No. Because God's promise of the land was typological of all the earth. A new heaven and a new earth where God would dwell with his people forever. Abraham and his believing descendants, people of faith, looked beyond the land to God's promise of a better country, a heavenly country, a redeemed and a restored world, including the land promised them. The the promise was bigger and more glorious than one strip of land. Now, how do we know this? How do we know that what I'm saying is right? Because the New Testament interprets the Old Testament just like this. How did Paul think about this stuff? He tells us, listen carefully to Romans 4, verse 13. This is key. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, did you catch that? We would expect Paul to say, in consistency with the Old Testament, heir of the land, heir of the land, but he didn't. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul said Abraham was heir of the world. The Old Testament says land, Paul says world. Why? Because the New Testament interprets what God's covenant promise was all about at the beginning. Not just a strip of land, but the world, the redeemed earth. God's promise was always an eschatological promise of salvation and eternal life with God for all God's covenant people on God's redeemed and restored new heaven and new earth. Now, Some Christians believe that God will simply destroy the current heavens and earth and then start over with something that never existed before. However, I think Scripture promises a redeemed, restored, recreated heaven and earth. This one made new, recreated. One source noted this. Some have thought that the new universe will be an entirely new world with no connection with the old But Isaiah 65, 17 through 25, and Romans 8, 21 through 23 indicate that a transfiguration of the old world is in view, like the way in which our new bodies will be transfigurations of the old. Everything is new, which indicates the thoroughness of transfiguration, but the result is redemption and not simply abolition of the old. Abolition of the old. We're talking about the preeminent fixer-upper. A renovation, a makeover, a glorious transformation. Isaiah uh, prophesied about the new heavens and the new earth. Check out Isaiah 65 and 66. But let me turn our attention for a moment to Romans 8, 18 through 23. I think this is just so good and so helpful for us. Paul says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, 
but because of him who subjected it in hope, verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. All right, tra- track with me here. Just as our bodies will be redeemed, so will all the world. The new heaven and earth are new, but not entirely disconnected from the old. Imagine this glorious and beautiful world renovated by God to be his kingdom without sin or death or suffering, a new paradise that is way better than the original one. Remember all the beauty we see around us is a corrupted beauty. Corrupted beauty. The new heaven and new earth will be uncorrupted beauty in the unveiled presence of God. Not floating around on clouds playing weird harps. Nothing weird about a harp. Not busting on harps as just mere spiritual beings, but physical and spiritual beings on a new earth living in the glorious kingdom of the glorious king. Consider Revelation 21, verses 1 and 2, John's vision of the end. This is what all of redemptive history has been leading to the entire time. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. A vision of the people of God who have inherited all the earth. G.K. Beale said, quote, there is a qualitative distinction between the two world orders, end of quote. Beale said this, kainos, new, what's used here in Revelation 21, usually indicates newness in terms of quality, not time. Quality, not time. Newness in time is a typical nuance of Neos, another Greek word, though the two words could sometimes be synonymous. The first was impermanent and temporary, whereas the second is to be permanent and enduring. The contrasting pairs, first, second, and old, new, express this qualitative distinction elsewhere in Revelation and biblical literature, end of quote. So the world that Abraham and his descendants were promised was a redeemed permanent, enduring, and perfect world. A restored earth, a better country, a kingdom in which God lives with his people and Christ reigns and rules in righteousness, in goodness, in beauty, in love and happiness forever. Blessed are the meek. Why? Because they inherit the earth. The earth belongs to the meek forever. Because they are heirs with Christ. Who inherits the earth? Who inherits the world? To whom were God's covenant promises ultimately given? And Paul tells us in Galatians 3.16, in clear terms, that Abraham's offspring is Christ. 
Christ is the offspring. Christ is whom the promises were for. Christ inherits it all, my friends. Psalm 2, verse 8, prophesies of Christ and says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of earth your possession. Hebrews 1, 2 says that God appointed His Son the heir of all things. Hebrews 2, 8 says that everything was put in subjection under His feet. It says, now in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control. Colossians 1, verse 18 says that in everything He might be preeminent. Jesus told His disciples in Matthew 28, 18 that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So God has given everything to Christ, the heir of all things. It all belongs to Christ. We could say, blessed is the meekest, Jesus Christ, for he has inherited all the earth. And now, dear brothers and sisters, listen to what Paul said to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained and inheritance. And verse 14 adds that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Only those who are in Christ are heirs with Christ. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The meek suffer with Christ in order to be glorified with Christ in the new heaven and new earth. Abraham receives the promised earth, the whole world, because of his union with Christ by faith. Same with Isaac, same with Jacob, same with Sarah, same with everyone throughout history who trusts in the gospel, in Christ alone. If we go to Jesus in John 8, to Paul in Romans 4, to Paul again in Romans 9, to Paul again in Galatians 3, to Hebrews 2, we see that it is believers who are the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, to inherit the earth is to inherit what Christ inherits via our union with him by faith. Abraham is the father of believers. He's our father. We are children of Abraham, brothers and sisters. And as the New Testament makes clear, all believers, including Abraham, inherit the earth because they inherit it as heirs with Christ, the promised heir. Jesus said nothing about Jew and Gentile in the Beatitudes. Because when he says theirs is the kingdom of heaven, they shall inherit the earth, they shall see God, they shall be called sons of God, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about those who see their sin and guilt, who receive him as Messiah, who receive him as salvation, and they receive him by faith, and who walk in obedience to Christ the King, because they want to, because he's precious to them. He brought the kingdom to human hearts, both Jews and Gentiles. He brought the promise of his future kingdom upon the earth to all nations, as we've seen in the book of Matthew so far. G.K. Beale wrote, but the most complete fulfillment of the promise is reserved for the future. When at Christ's return in glory, the meek will inherit 
the new heaven and earth, the rejuvenated universe from which every stain of sin and every remnant of the curse will have been removed and in which righteousness will forever dwell. Isn't that what you want? It's the lack of that that causes us all the problems we have in this life now. I want that. That's what I want. I think you do. You want this. Brothers and sisters, why, what, what do you do when aggressive, overbearing, haughty, domineering, and mean people trample on you to get what they want, to move ahead? What do you do? And then you watch, and it works. They get what they want. They make you look like a fool. They make you feel so inferior. You lose, they win. Why on earth would you want to be meek in that moment? My dear brothers and sisters, consider the reward. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's why. Meekness is awesome. If only I was more meek. If only you were more meek. The gospel says that the earth is yours if you're meek. Want to be meek? Not only that, you'll just be happier in this life by being meek. If you practice meekness, so many benefits. Your spirit will be lighter. Your heart will be free and clear. There are unfathomable blessings, practical blessings. Not only eschatological, but practical in this life blessings of being meek. Dear ones, true happiness is found in meekness. That's what I'm trying to say. Look to Christ. Trust him. Draw strength from his grace to be meek and delight in that thought. Delight in the fact that all the earth is yours.